0: I'm thrilled to announce that TSK has returned as headline sponsor for another season. We all see that the world of work has changed. We've seen a true workplace revolution in the last few years. The line between work and life is blurred. We believe the fundamentals of this change is here to stay. When you're a leader in that environment, you're probably having those ongoing questions through the uncertainty, questions around How we can draw people back to the workplace? How we can stay competitive? Where are staff supposed to work? Can we measure office utilization? How do we transition into hybrid working? How do we maintain the company culture and how much space do we actually need? Why do we even need an office? TSK has spent over two decades helping some of the world's biggest brands to create inspiring places to work for their people, working with them to create robust workplace strategies, creative design solutions, and quality-built environments. TSK's track record is impressive, and we wanted to share some of those insights and stories with our listeners here on the World Podcast. Well-known global brand, Kellogg's, has always maintained their values for a concrete and positive company culture, expressing this as hashtag like at K. This was most important at the Dublin offices, home of the Kellogg's European headquarters. In 2019, TSK, our headline sponsor, began working with Kellogg's to realize their dream workplace to help their local and European community thrive. But then, an unforeseen global event turned the project on its head. More on that later in the show. Welcome back to the War Bold Podcast, where we chat with the leaders in commercial real estate to answer all questions, space as a service. This podcast is for anyone involved in commercial real estate in any way. If you're an investor, fund manager, developer, property manager, agent, or broker, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm your host, Caleb Parker, and this is episode three of season eight sponsored by TSK. One of the reasons we launched the WorkWorld podcast was to help our landlord clients understand the why, what, and how spaces of service can improve the leasing strategy of their portfolios. My team and I have analyzed and created business plans for hundreds of assets, many of which we end up operating, too. I've been encouraged to see the broker community lean into Flats in recent years and want to shine a light on the folks I believe are working hard to share best practice like we do on this show. So I'm thrilled to see Savils backing the space as a service movement and delighted to share this interview with the leaders of their Flats advisory platform work there. In this episode, Cal Lee and Jack Williamson join me in our podcast studio at Exchange at 22 Bishopsgate to drill down into the details of why, what, how landlords should be thinking about spaces and service. Get ready to write notes because we get into a lot of details, including footprint size, spatial allocations, the key points of accommodating a flex business plan, when landlords should partner or do it yourself, DIY, how to address building valuation and a forest brand considerations. Work There just released their Flexmark 3.0, and we discussed some of the key findings from their data-backed research, such as the top five requested features of a flex space. Side note, Jack and I recently shared the stage at the Coworking London conference, and I got to give him another shout out like I did from that stage on his super cool wardrobe. As always, if you have any questions or feedback or topics you won't cover, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at calebbundes for parker or DM me on LinkedIn. Earlier in the show, we introduced the beginning of a workplace transformation for Kellogg's European headquarters. To tell you more about that story, let's hear from the design and build team behind the project, TSK.
1: Our existing relationship with Kellogg's spanned back to 2018, when we designed and delivered their world-class UK head offices in Manchester. We were ready to raise the bar in Dublin, building a strategy to see the team move from two buildings into one unified, open plan and connected space at Dublin Airport. The design had been agreed, work was already underway, then Covid hit. Headlines like, the office is dead, is remote work in here to stay, were circulating and businesses around the globe were reconsidering what the purpose of the office was for them. But if anything, it solidified the work we were about to do.
2: We wanted to create a space which is more representative of our brand, the way we've innovated and changed in the market. We wanted our offices to look and feel like that as well. It sort of comes back to our four C's about connection, creativity, culture, and collaboration. Cowley is the
0: founder and global head of WorkThere. WorkThere is a search and advisory platform for businesses seeking flexible workspace. WorkThere was launched in 2017 in the UK and is part of international real estate advisor Savills. It has since launched in 11 other countries where they have teams in the U.S. across Europe, including Spain and in Asia, India, and Singapore. In the last 24 months, work There has also evolved to include landlord and operator services, helping both to scale their flexible workspace platforms. platforms. Jack Williamson is head of work There UK and runs the broker's team as well as leading the WorkThere landlord consultancy side of the business. Work there generates a huge amount of data and insight, which powers both the customer and landlord advisory businesses and allows clients to make data driven decisions to ensure they are receiving best in class advice at any one point in time. Welcome to the WorkBook podcast, guys. Thank you for having us, Caleb. Yeah, thank you, Caleb. Uh, it's brilliant. I know uh, my colleagues have worked with you guys for, for some time over the past couple of years, and probably maybe I'm working on some stuff right now that I won't talk about. But it's good to have you here, and I'm very excited. After reading your FlexSmart report, uh, I got really excited. Recently, and I've tweeted this myself, but recently we've seen a lot of headlines about companies embracing hybrid work as a result of the pandemic coming out of that. And the knock-on effect is that companies are starting to reduce their office footprint. We've got headlines saying Meta, Amazon, Salesforce, UBS, all have been in the headlines recently in this respect. But, you know, anecdotally, we're seeing a huge demand across our portfolio for Flex. And obviously this Flex report was very compelling. So I want you to tell us, what are you seeing? Is Flex on fire?
1: I think that, you know, the Flex market is so diverse in that it appeals to such a number of different kind of occupiers. So there's, you know, 53% of corporate occupiers say they need more flex in their portfolio, but we're also seeing of our inquiries at work there, 18% are from new businesses. So from that diversity across, you know, startup scale ups to corporates, I think that the offering is appealing to far more and therefore there's more demand in the market at present.
3: Yeah, I'd say, I mean, is it on fire? I don't know. Uh, I think it's hot. Definitely. It's been a really strong period. The beauty of us doing this Flexmark over the last three years is we've seen a very good market in 2019. We've seen the challenges of 2020 and into 2021. And now we're seeing the bounce back in 2022. Uh, And the data shows it. occupancy is now back to 82% globally, which is a really strong figure. The Flexmark says 89% of operators are now profitable. And again, that's an increase on where we were 2019 through to 2021 and today in 2022. And about 48% are now at a higher margin of 16% or above than what they were in 2020, which was less than, I think it was less than 32% at that point. So the metrics are saying it's hot. The metrics are
0: certainly saying it's bounced back and we've been in a really positive period for Flex. Well, Jack, you talk about the diversity of the customers and, you know, that the reasons for going into Flex for one customer might be different to another. Why would you say, I mean, Flex flex space has been around for ages. Why is it on fire now?
1: I think the reason why demand is increasing is due to the diversity of, you know, the Flex offering. You know, it's not just a homogenous product. There are vast amounts of different products out there. And I think hybrid working has come about increasingly due to the pandemic. It's not New from the pandemic. However, the different ways of working and the abilities of staff and employees working from different locations has really increased. And what I think we're finding now is that a lot of decisions, business wise, with regards to working locations and practices, uh, rather than them historically being employer led, are now employee led. And that means different spaces, different quality, different looks and feels. So for me, I think, you know, the reason why the market's you know, quite hot at the minute is down to those nuances of people wanting to work in different spaces and therefore that translating not just in, you know, startups and scale ups, but also in those corporates and new businesses as well.
3: Yeah, just, I mean, I, all I'd add there is, as Jack says, the employees have a lot of power at the moment. And certainly when we talk to our corporate clients and when our occupier Services team to their, talk to their corporate clients, power that employees have is making it more and more difficult to make decisions longer term. And therefore, that lends itself fundamentally to flex because it's something you can pick up in a week or two weeks, whatever it might be, in taking a new space. So from a decision-making perspective, I think it, it's come out strong because it's helped corporates adjust some of their real estate strategy,
0: whereas it's, it's been harder for them to make those longer-term decisions about what they do with that power. Well, that's sort of the inherent in the definition of flex, to, to be able to have those different choices. And we talked on this podcast uh, several times before about the fact that Real estate is moving from a, a B2B sort of conversation to more B2C-driven decisions. But, you know, when it t- comes to the different types of flex, I think a lot of times the traditional folks in our industry think of flex as, you know, either, either a Regis or a WeWork. And as you say, Jack, there's so much more than that, so diverse. But I want to get maybe a little bit granular here on that because I think uh, there's been a lot of questions around what works. And if we can talk maybe about the spatial allocation. So what is Flex and what is the right spatial allocation of a successful uh, Flex product? You said 89% are making a profit now of, of co-working operators. So you've got co-working, of course, hot desking, dedicated desks, a cafe, you've got meeting rooms events, offices, suites on flex terms? Is it all of that combined? Is it part of that? Can can they exist in silos? or Should they be put together? What's your view?
1: I don't think there is a one-size-fits-all. I don't think there's a cookie cutter that you can move from office to office. I think a lot of it, again, is, is business-led. Um, there are a number of different operators in the market now offering nuances and different target audiences. But I think what we find with the rise of hybrid working is that 71% of businesses are looking to manage that people flow. Now, that means that on a Monday, there may not be that many people in. Tuesday, Wednesday, there might be, you know, everyone is in or once a month, everyone is in. Friday might be quiet again. So it's about how that space is managed and curated and having versatile spaces. So something that may be all day, every day, a cafe breakout area might double up as an auditorium or an all-hands area where it's needed to, or meeting rooms may have bifold doors that can open up into boardrooms. So it's all about the use of those spaces and having that you know, versatility and agility within the space. And then 52% of when we undertook our last survey wanted high-quality office spaces and tech-enabled spaces. Therefore, it's not just, as you call it, you know, the hardware of the physical, where's a seat, where's a meeting room, where's a private office. It's all about those other areas to allow you to work in various locations. So I don't think in answer to your question, there is a formula for how many meeting rooms need to be in this space, how many desks, you know, per square foot, etc. It's more about having the versatility and the agility to meet changing criteria of various different occupiers, as well as having the different diverse level of offerings across the flex market.
0: Yeah, no, I can attest to that. And just anecdotally, on my end, you know, we're sitting here today in the exchange at 22 Bishopsgate. We did a lot of thinking when we designed this space about how people want to work coming out of the pandemic. And I think people got used to working from home and some people love it, some people hate it. But the fact is, there are certain comforts of working from home. And so we wanted to bring some of those in uh, and, and, and give that um, work setting for people to, to choose to work from, but also be able to move around. And I think it's important that you have that diversity and flexibility within the space.
3: And I think it's really interesting here, and thank you for showing us around. We know that, and the data always says that where most operators make their money from is the private space, because that's the contracted income, that's your six, 12-month deals of 5, 10, 200 desks. It's really interesting here that effectively you have no private space, it's meeting room space, it's open space, to your point, all focused around, I guess, that new world of work hybrid and trying to bring people together. So I'm really fascinated to see how that
0: works and plays out. Yeah, it's, it's, it is fascinating to see and we're learning and I can't say that I have all the answers right now. We've been open here for a few months now and to see the different types of uses is fascinating to me. We have a, a well-being startup that comes in once a week. We have another company that has described to five reserved seats every day. They have 80 people though that can they can book those five seats. So, it's just fascinating the range and diversity that we that we're seeing. But yeah, okay. So, there's this clear demand for new types of space to accommodate new types of working. But it feels often in a lot of the conversations that, that I've had uh, with folks in the industry, whether it be in person like this or online, we kind of want things to go back to the way they used to be. And we're not embracing these, these new ways of working. We're not embracing flexibility. But if that's the case, then there's, there will be a clear gap between supply and demand. There is a clear gap between supply and demand, in my opinion. So I want your opinion on this. Do you think every landlord should be adding flex as a leasing strategy to their portfolio? I don't think necessarily we will see every
3: landlord go and create their own flex space because every landlord is slightly different. You've got lots of different business structures out there, lots of different return profiles out there. I think there's definitely a general acceptance that they need to do more. We interviewed, we've got another survey coming out where we interview all of our landlord clients within Savills. And I think 57% of them said flex space is either very important, important, or it's a nice to have. So there's clearly an acknowledgement, and I think something like 72% said they expect their tenants to demand it. But within that, you've clearly got a mismatch because more tenants potentially are demanding it than landlords are providing it. To your point, Caleb, there could be a supply imbalance. However, not every landlord is set up to go and provide it. We've seen some go and do it well. We've seen some do it less well. And so it's going to be looking at it on a case-by-case basis and situation basis, location basis. What do you need from that real estate? Does Flexbase complement your wider offer? It's not always the case, but I think more and more we will see it as a, as a really important part of that broader offer to their potential customers, be them big corporates, be them small and startups, to um, to help liven the space, to help bring people together, all the you know, positive things we know that FlexSpace can go and do. So I think we'll definitely see more landlords do it. We'll also see lots more landlords partner, and we'll still see some landlords not do it.
1: Yeah, and I, I think just building on that last point from Cal, it's about the choice for landlords. They still have the choice of undertaking a lease with a provider. They still have the choice of a management agreement, which can be structured many different ways. And they also have the option of running something themselves or something in between. So I think, you know, either on a building by building or a business by business case, they have the optionality of how they want to deliver that flex space within a single building or a wider portfolio. So I think there is still a catching up piece. I think the piece that is probably integral is going to be the sort of hospitality led approach and ensuring that the high quality of space that's being delivered is also being matched with that demand from the occupiers for that hospitality-led approach. So I, I think for landlords, they've got a lot of choice. And, and you know they hold a lot of the cards with regards to that because they hold a lot of the upcoming supply. The next five years will be really interesting
3: because as we mature as a sector, and as Jack says, more landlords enter, I think in that survey I referenced, 22% are planning or, or, or would like to go and deliver their own space. And certainly there's landlords we've spoken to where they're quite happy to make mistakes. They're quite happy to go on that learning journey because they recognize that this could be 20, 30% of their portfolio long term and so understanding fundamentally how it works, how they should deliver it, what the customer wants and effectively getting their hands dirty, they're happy to do and going to the point before that won't be for all, some will want to partner and leverage the expertise that
0: that you guys and lots of other operators are able to bring. Well, this is one of the reasons we set this podcast up is to share sort of best practice and the, the folks that are that are out there doing this. Um, what are they learning? So uh, I'm glad you guys are joining today and and having and sharing your insights. I want to sort of dive in in a moment to the choices that you refer to that landlords have. But before we do, I want to ask your thoughts on putting aside how they do it, but for those landlords who want to do it, but maybe. The cycle they're in uh, the asset the business plan they're in didn't account for doing it but they realize they have to do it now you know, otherwise they have a risky asset what do you advise them to do
1: are you talking about them delivering it themselves or solely delivering it themselves or partnering with someone I, I
0: i think that's the second question uh we, 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 we'll get to that but when they're sitting there and they're like okay I, I know i need to do this but i hadn't accounted for this and i, I need to do it but i don't have the business plan to do it. Well, it might, it
3: might sound a bit obvious, but obviously they need to speak to some experts who know about the market and, and what they do. We do a lot of feasibilities for different landlords without making this a sales pitch because it doesn't work in every building or location. There's locations where margins are going to be too tight. There's locations where fundamentally we don't think there's enough demand. So we have to use all of the data we collect from our website and our teams and understand whether it's feasible in a location. And that That's always the first step. And then to your point, you look at the options. What routes are available? Do we, as you say, go and deliver it ourselves? What type of product do we want to create? Or do we go and partner with another operator? And and again, what type of product suits that local market?
0: What do we want to go and create? In your report, I was looking that you break down the size footprints. Is there a size footprint? And Jack, you said no one size fits all, but is there sort of a best? Templated practice in your mind. We have our own thoughts, of course, but I'm curious what are you seeing uh, for, for a flex or co working space footprint in a building? What's the template? What size? 20,000 square feet?
1: It, it feels to me, and Cal may have a different view, and it'd be interesting to see what your thoughts are as well, Caleb. It feels to me it's probably between 20 000 and 60,000 feet for a sort of sweet spot. And I know that's quite a large range, but it depends on you know, what you're delivering. But I think between 20 and 60,000 feet, the majority of those, you know, flex operators that we've been talking about, the diversity can fit what they need to, and how they need to. But that's still dependent on location, building, floor plates, etc. But as a rough number, I'm not sure again, you know, if Cal agrees or if you agree, for me, it's 20 to 60,000 feet.
3: Yeah, I would probably lower the barrier to entry slightly. I'd say 15 is probably your earliest sweet spot but uh, as we've said the spaces I know the four five, ten thousand five 10,000 square foot that work very well down to that specific business model of operator or that location but yeah I think Jack certainly the 15 to 30,000 square foot for me is where we see most sort of Appetite both from operators and from landlords as well. And they've got to think about the wider valuation equation. Uh, but there's also operators there who, minimum, will only take 50,000 square feet or even more. So um, there's a few nuances, but yeah, that seems to be the sweet spot.
0: Yeah, cer- certainly nuances. And, you know, I'll say, historically, in, in all the plans that we've modeled previously, 20,000 square feet is sort of where the sweet spot begins. There are the 15,000 square foot edge cases. But on this season, we have an episode where an operator in the States is taking former retail spaces in less than 7,000 square feet, even as low as 3,000 square feet. And they figured out how to make it profitable. So I'm <laughs> offline trying to dive into that and understand it. But um, yeah, so I think, like you say, we, to deliver the diversity of of workspaces and and offerings to to create a, a, a community and to get the economies of scale, that twenty thousand square foot seems to be the sweet spot. But that brings up my next big question for you: valuations. And you know, the, the, it seems like the the banks, the lenders, the valuers aren't really looking kindly on FlexSpace still, even though it's in high demand. How are you dealing with that with your clients?
3: Look, there's clearly an education journey and a bit of a a knowledge gap. But I think, you know, certainly we've had positive conversations in the last two months with different banks who have appetite to understand it in much more detail. They accepted that this isn't a fad. This isn't something that's going to come and go they recognize that it's something that is very much here to stay and will be part of real estate portfolios going forward and so in their words they said you know we we've, we've got to get to under the bonnet of it we've got to really understand how these work how management agreements work how different structures go and work so i think that's a really positive step we're clearly a long way because that's only you know a handful of banks with there's lots of different banks out there but the valuation piece hasn't really been in any way resolved Yeah, the operators or owner operators have different views versus, as you say, some of the lenders and some of the valuers, but we need to go on this journey. I think core to that is data and data giving all those people confidence in how these assets perform, confidence that you might be signing six-month licenses or 12-month licenses, but effectively, like student or like hotels, these sectors maintain, and to our flex mark, 82% 82% or even better occupancy. So that income is more secure than it might appear on paper. And I think what we've got to get better at as a sector is how we illustrate that, how we show all these different institutions, the, the resilience of our sector and how it works. And, you know, we've seen that with hotels now over a number of years, the management agreements are not new. How you value hotels is certainly not new. And there's a lot of acceptance there that a big brand goes in and they'll be able to sell that space and fill that space at a, at a bed rate that's respectable. And I think we're on a bit of a journey as a sector, and it will take a bit more time. But we, it feels like we're beginning to
0: do the right things and have the right conversations. Well, it's encouraging to hear that there are some banks leaning into this. If this is going to be a, such a significant part of the market, then we need more banks leaning into it. And, you know, we're certainly talking to some that are finally looking favorable on this, but we need more. So going down the conversation back to, okay, now they figured out how do they do it? You know, do they do it themselves? Do they look to lease and find the best, you know, partner to take a lease? Or do they partner and share the risk and the upside? I have my opinions, of course, but I would love to hear from you how you guide that conversation and help that client understand what the right path is.
1: So work there and at Savills, you know, we advise with the data we generate a lot of landlords and, you know, part of this advice is we need to understand what their core drivers are and whether that's, you know, exiting a building, whether it's long term income, as Cal said, there are many different drivers. So first of all, it's understanding what those drivers are. Then it's looking into what assets they have. What, how they're laid out, where they're located, and then it's working through what their appetite is. And the, the the three choices really are running something themselves, a lease with an operator, or a management agreement. Now, leases with operators aren't necessarily the most common at the minute, and there aren't that many operators that are looking to take a straight lease. So the choices are kind of reduced to do you want to deliver something yourself and run it yourself which then becomes an operational business and that and you know entails is things like the hospitality led approach landlords are very capable of delivering buildings they're very capable of delivering great quality fully fitted space so it's ensuring that they have the wants and the capability and the team in place to implement the operational side of it so that's one choice that needs to be looked at and then the second you know more popular choice in some ways at times is the management agreement because as you pointed out there's a share with a partnership there's a share on that profit they have some say over what's you know coming in rather than a straight lease so it it kind of depends or totally depends on the landlord themselves and we go through that process and handhold on that process but then it boils down to what do they want and not every landlord is going to want to develop their own brand because they're developers. They're real estate developers. They're not an operational business. So therefore, the partnership model works well because they're sharing on that upside as well as having a brand that they've chosen to partner with and curate. Considering what we talked about with valuations, if the exit
0: plan is three to five years to an institutional, but you've got a lot of that revenue, a percentage of that revenue in flex, how do you accommodate that? How do you account for that in that business plan with the three to five year exit?
1: So I think it's all about the upfront DD, you know, their landlord's doing, who they're partnering with, what their track record is, what the returns are. And we're there to interrogate those returns and ensure that we think what's being offered on that revenue share and that deliverability of the space as well as pricing is all realistic and we're offsetting that with our data so i think that's the key point number one is who they're partnering with and how it's structured the key point number two is giving whoever they're partnering with the best opportunity for success you know and that is you know, working with them to both of an end goal. And then the third point is what Cal was saying. It's about the market catching up. You know, management agreements are not a new thing. So it's about how do we educate as an industry, the investors or future investors or banks on flex as a space on that management agreement model, because hotels aren't let at 100%. You know, they're not let on, oh, well, you you have X amount of commitments for X amount of beds. So it's about how do we bring that into the flex market and educating those investors, those future investors. And I think there's a bit of it about size and space take. So if it's under 20% of a building, there's an argument to say that that's an added amenity to the building. And if the net effectives are increased, then that shouldn't really affect evaluation, certainly not negatively. It's then what percent of a building is dedicated to flex that I think may affect it going forwards.
0: So, just before we move away from how to do it, partner versus DIY, because that seems to be the choices, because there might be just one or two ple- people out there that will actually take a lease right now, and we know who those are. The DIY bit. so. Anthony Slumbers, our great friend and champion of our industry, some might say coined the term space as a service, he has this piece on, are you a chicken or a pig? And he uses an example on chicken and a bacon and egg sandwich. So if you a chicken or a pig in the bacon and egg sandwich? Because the, uh, the pig's committed and the chicken just con- contributed. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but he's saying that if a landlord's not committed, not fully committed to go in the distance and creating that operational business within their um, company to, to build the brand, to do all the marketing around it and to deliver that hospitality experience, then they should probably just partner. So are you seeing a lot of landlords that are actually pigs and committed? Yeah, I think it goes back to that, to that point I
3: made previously where we are seeing a, definitely a number of landlords which we're, you know, we're also helping hand in hand commit to it. And as part of that, they, they want to learn those lessons that you have as you as you make mistakes and and you learn from them and you move on and they're very much committed because they understand how important this is to their portfolio and to their customer offer going forward. Clearly where we've seen landlords who want to do it but haven't committed 100% that that's often where it's, it's gone wrong and they've had to bring in an operator later down the line who has that expertise and knows exactly what they're doing. So we're definitely seeing there a shift. Of our, several of our clients commit full scale and want to learn and, and want to go and create a space for longer-term benefit.
0: Okay, well, that brings up a, a big topic that I'm passionate about, and that's brand. Because to me, the future of real estate, brand matters significantly, where it hasn't really mattered as much in the past, especially as we're moving to a B2C conversation. Is there enough data out there yet to be able to say whether brand is driving customer behavior? I'd say think anyway. I mean,
3: Jack might correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think there's data that really underwrites that at this stage. I think more of it is anecdotal. I agree though. Brand is incredibly important. I think that's why you've seen landlords brand their Flex products different in a way to to their wider business brand because they recognize that creating something tangible as a brand for not just the customers, but the partners you work with to go and fill that space, create that space. So it is all very important, but I don't think there's underlying data there to say that how you brand Means means where customers come from. I think strength of brand, though, anecdotally, is really important. Certainly, we see it from a corporate perspective. When we're revising some of our corporate occupier clients, you know, they instantly know which brands they like and don't like. And that's from using those different spaces across, across the world. And so that brand piece plays out and, and that trust piece is all about trust, isn't it, with the brand? If you trust that brand, you'll go back. And so creating a, a trusted brand is absolutely key for us or key for each operator key for any landlord going to create their own space and key for ourselves obviously advising clients
1: yeah i've not got a lot to add to that i mean brands in general are important in life and we all choose what we know and what we like and what we trust and we probably don't on the ones we've had bad experiences with so i think building that brand and having those core values within a brand and sticking to what you believe not what you think the op- occupiers want on a weekly changing basis, I think sticking with those core values will inherently provide a better brand and a better experience for those occupiers and, and hopefully get that repeat business.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you, Jack. And I think that uh, if we look at the history of commercial real estate, we were all things to all people. And it didn't matter who came into our buildings as long as they had a strong covenant and you know could pay the bills. But as we move to this B2C conversation, I see brand being more important today. And I think we'll end up looking, you know, in the next 5, 10, 15 years, we'll look really similar to the hotel industry where we've got some really strong global brands, maybe big three or four of those. And then we have some really strong local brands and then lots of independents, I believe. But I'd uh, be interested to see how the data unfolds around that. And uh, hopefully you guys will look at ways to, to, to track that empirically. Okay. Well, I have a couple final questions for you and really appreciate you guys sharing your time today. You touched on this earlier, Jack, but I'm curious around the customer profile changing. Um, it used to be that startups were and freelancers were considered co-working customers and obviously they still are. You talked about corporates coming in, but overall, is, can, can you dive in any details around how the customer profile is changing around the flex market?
1: Yeah, I think about um, just over forty percent, so two fifths, I think, make up of scale-ups and corporates. You know, that's a pretty big chunk. Eighteen percent of inquiries into work there last year were from new businesses. So I think you know that in itself is about sixty percent. So what that shows is the real diversity of the flexible market, and I think that's the huge positive and the huge takeaway. And what us at work there and at Savills are really You know happy with and bullish on because the diversity of the market and the resilience that it's shown subsequent to the pandemic has been testament to that diversity because you're not just having as you say startups and scale-ups and small one to five people businesses You know, having entire businesses of a thousand desks or corporates with project teams of 500, as well as a scale up that may go from five to 50 to 200 employees in a three year period. So for me, I think, you know, that sort of two thirds of that picture of new businesses, scale ups and corporates is a real good underpinning to the vast majority of businesses and occupiers that FlexSpace works for.
0: And then just diving a little bit deeper into that, and, and I picked up, this is a softball question here, I'm just going to t- lay it up for you, basketball question maybe, it is in your report about the top five requested features of a flex space. So can you talk about those?
3: Yeah, we wanted to look at, you know, what does the end user want? You know, what do they want from their office space, obviously beyond it, uh, having a desk? And the main one, maybe not surprisingly, in, a, in, a, in this kind of post-ish pandemic world, is phone booths and you know somewhere to do those teams calls in private without those background noises. We've all been on calls where so there's people shouting in the office, so I think no surprises there. Phone booths. The other top priority or second on the list was internal meeting rooms. You know, there's a reason we go to the office; it's to collaborate uh, and having those spaces where you can bring people together. So probably not not surprising either. But the third one, probably maybe more interesting, is as real estate strategies adjust. I would say, and as hybrid working takes. Hold is extra day passes, so we have seen companies reduce. You know, there might be forty people, and they reduce their space take to half of that, but then they take another twenty passes for their staff to use. As Jack's point earlier in the podcast, through the week, you know, on the peak days, twenty people might be in the office, and there's ten people who need some co-working space just outside because thirty people are in. Whereas on the Monday and Friday, it might it might be a bit quieter or whatever their policy is going to be. So that's certainly globally become a, a big
0: emerging trend since the last Flexmark we did a year ago. Fascinating. Fascinating. Well, glad you mentioned those things because uh, we're seeing similar things, so it's good good to see it's not just us. Okay, well, big question. What's next? What's next for Flex?
1: I think, for me, it's positivity. It's the growth of the sector, the understanding more of the sector and the acceptability of the sector, and then looking forwards longer term, we've been talking about management agreements and how they're not a new thing in the world and in trading of assets and businesses, I think it will be, you know, and I hope that it will be towards becoming an institutional asset class. And that is with the tradability of those management agreements and the understanding and the acceptance of those, you know, in the investor market.
0: I think we need a standing applause for that one. Yeah, well done, Jack.
3: (laughs) But yeah, I think, you know, what's next? A great Time hopefully of a a maturing sector. Clearly, there's a journey to go on with with things like valuation, with ESG, and that came out top in terms of what you know what was the biggest item on our agenda for the next five years. It was zero carbon spaces. So there's lots of things to work on as our sector matures. But as Jack said, a super exciting three, four, five years ahead as the space take grows, as the quality of spaces grow, and as we see more and more demand from a whole range of different types of businesses and people.
0: All right, sort of a non podcasty work question here, but it, I mean, it could be work. But now that we've got live events back, yay, what's the best live event you've been to recently? Jack?
1: I'd have to say, me and my girlfriend went to watch Ed Sheeran at Wembley a couple of weeks ago, which was great. Probably want to add also last weekend I was on a stag do and we went to watch the Greyhounds in Nottingham, which was uh, also very enjoyable.
3: Yeah, I was racking my brain and I just remembered that I got married a month ago. So that, that was quite clearly the best, the best life. You event. have to say that. Come yeah. on. I, I
0: went to this, the, Yeah, since, since the pandemic, we had, we had absolutely a, a brilliant day. Amazing. Well, congratulations. Thanks I did not do that. So <laughs> well done. Awesome. If we didn't have to pay millions in royalties uh, to Ed Sheeran, we would play his music right now. I'm a big fan as well. Thank you both for coming on and sharing your insights. Um, I look forward to continue our offline conversations and let's keep championing Spaces of Service and Flex.
1: Brilliant. Thanks very much, Caleb. Thanks for having us.
0: Yeah, thanks, Caleb. I was
3: going to offer Jack to sing us out to the Led Shearer song. Ooh, can you sing? Can you sing it out? Come on.
1: Well, as you can hear, I've got a bit of a sore throat, so uh it's... probably wouldn't do it justice and he'd probably be after me as well you, you feel free
0: no 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 I'm definitely going <laughs> to cough out because my, my, my one act play is, is vanilla ice as everyone knows so. can we hear a bit well alright stop collaborate and listen <laughs> no um, so I should say uh, yo man let's get out of here word to your mother to end this but I'm going to say thank you all for listening today be sure to connect with Jack and Cal on LinkedIn we'll put the links to their profiles in the show notes uh, and until next time take care of yourself And now the final break to complete the story of how TSK helped Kellogg's create their workplace of the future. This time in the words of Kellogg's, which means I have to mention, I had a chance to meet Kellogg's European facilities manager, Derek McDonald on a recent trip to Manchester, England. Let's hear what he and his team have to say.
2: We found that we had a natural attrition rate where people, once we opened the office, with no pressure, they started to come back in. Now, when you walk in the door here, the flavor that you get, you see all the branding, you see how light and airy and spacious it is. There's so many different spaces to work in, not just standard desks. It just really, really works very well.
3: When we saw it come to life, it was really interesting because you never really think it's going
0: to look like it's going to in the picture, but it did.
2: You definitely know it's a Kellogg's building when you walk into this floor and I love the reaction of everybody who comes here. It's nice to now be proud of a workspace. When you look at the design of the office, TSK really understood that from where our culture is to where we want it to be. We wanted people mingling. We wanted people to get to know each other. And it's very evident in the layouts, the designs. And when you look at our brands and our colors and our phone and our, our product, that's evident here. And that was great working with a team that understood what we were about, what we wanted. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you
0: enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And remember, fortune favors the bold. Drum roll, please. P.S. If you want to find out about future-proofing your portfolio, head over to newflex.com.
3: Making a high-quality podcast like this one takes a lot of work. That's a fact. But not when you hire a podcast company. With our White Glove experience, we handle everything for you. From guest outreach all the way through to publishing and promotion, we handle it all. You show up to hold great interviews and build relationships with your guests and we take care of everything else. Podcasting is not just about the audience. Every podcast interview is the start of a new relationship. With a weekly podcast, you'd build relationships with 52 ideal partners or prospects through your podcast interviews over the next 12 months.
2: Do you believe that 52 new relationships would help grow your business? We do. Contact Jason at apodcastcompany.com and let's talk.